All right, let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin. This is a long one. This is 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 25. If you'll remember, the issue of spiritual gifts has been brewing in the church at Corinth. Paul has spoken about the most important thing, which is love. Uh, And he goes back to now addressing the central issue uh, that the Corinthians were asking, which is what is the most important spiritual gift? Hear the word of the Lord. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation of knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, it is with your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is saying? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind. Also, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The word of the Lord. Well, if I was to mention the name Nicholas Copernicus, what would you think of? Quite possibly nothing or a YouTube sensation. But oh no, Copernicus was not a YouTube sensation. He was an astronomer uh, in the 1500s. 
who came up with the revolutionary idea of heliocentrism. See, beforehand, everyone believed that the Earth was the center of the galaxy and that all of the planets revolved around it. But Copernicus, through his calculations, discovered, lo and behold, that the sun was actually the center of the universe, and all planets, including the Earth, revolved around it. Well, this, his theory was met with great skepticism from many, many different corners, because all believed that Earth was the center. Indeed, his ideas were condemned, even by the church. It was over almost 100 years later that Galileo himself was convicted of heresy for following the position of Copernicus and was placed under house arrest for the rest of his life. So what was the source of the animosity against Copernicus's theory? It wasn't the math. It was rather that it goes against our fallen nature. For mankind believes that he is the center of all things. We all evaluate everything through the lens, how does it affect me? We tend, like that old model, to believe that people and circumstances in life revolve around us. In a word, we are self-centered. See, we are uh, tempted to live that way, whether as a non-Christian or as a Christian. But we are not designed to be the center of the universe. Indeed, the problem with planet Earth and with ourselves is that we are not the center. And when we live as such, we run into all sorts of problems. Well, it was Jesus Christ who came who also touched off another revolution. It was Jesus, the one sent from God the Father, who showed us that our lives were not meant to be us-centric, but rather theocentric, for God to be the center of our lives. Remember the greatest commandment, that we are to love not ourselves with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but rather God, that this is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. We are not only meant to be theocentric, but alias-centric. A-L-I-U-S, which means others, other-centric. For Jesus said that the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. As Philippians 2.3 puts it, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. Jesus came not only to teach us the truth, but to free us from the tyranny of a self-dominated life. And he enables us through the power of the Holy Spirit that he has sent us to live theocentric and aliocentric lives. And so the question we are going to examine today is this, am I living this way? Well, Carlos, I thought this sermon was about prophecy and tongues. It is and it isn't. It's really about love, about putting others and God above ourselves. And to show this, I'm going to have to explain and work through this very difficult passage. So we're going to look at three things. Number one, we're going to look at the what. What is he talking about when he's talking about tongues and prophecy? Then number two, we're going to, talk, we're going to look at the so what. 
What does this mean for me in my existence now? And then finally, we're going to look at the now what. Where do I go from here, having learned this? So the what, the so what, and the now what. But if you want to sum up everything I'm going to say in the next three hours, it's simply this. When you give up a self-centered life, it's then that you begin to live. Well, let's look at the what. What's he talking about here? Remember, the issue of spiritual gifts has come up in the church. The Corinthians have written Paul asking him the question, which is the most important spiritual gift? They're not really asking the question in terms of how to help the church. It's a popularity contest in Corinth. Now, God has always given gifts to the people in the church for the purpose of administering his grace through one another Uh, through our hands and our feet. Each one of you, if you are a Christian, God has given spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up the body. But it is important to understand that God does not work the same way all the time. You know, if you look throughout history, even through the Bible, you'll discover that large portions of the Bible, there's really not anything miraculous going on. But there are specific times in history when God is doing something pivotal and works in a miraculous, overt way. So, for instance, when God calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, he gives these tremendous, miraculous powers to enable that process. It's the same thing when he sends Jesus. It's a specific diachronic slice, to use a theological term, in history, where Jesus' message is accompanied by signs and wonders, miracles and demonstrations of power. Jesus dies and is resurrected, and he sends his apostles out to preach the message. And one of the gifts given to the apostles was the ability to perform miracles. Indeed, Peter, it says in Acts 5, that people would bring Uh, people on the road so that as Peter's shadow came across them, they would be healed. Well, why did, did God do that? Well, you see, back then, there was not the New Testament. There was not the Bible. The apostles were the Bible. And these miracles provided the authenticity that these were the sent ones from God, for they were acting in the place of Jesus Christ. But you'll notice that there was a specific lifespan to the apostles, right? We didn't keep appointing them. They, indeed, one of the qualifications for being apostle was they had to have seen the Lord. And the reason we did not keep appointing them, needing people with these miraculous powers, is because the Bible was written down and born. That the Bible is the power, as Romans 1.16 The gospel is the power for salvation. But as these apostles were going out, accompanied by this miraculous powers, churches were being planted. And within the churches, people were being given spiritual gifts. Some of them very ordinary, quote unquote, like service and administration and giving and faith. But there were other miraculous gifts being given in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 talks about workers of miracles. 
and those who have the gifts of healing. And two of those more miraculous gifts are prophecy and speaking in tongues. Now, the two particular foundations, you see, God is laying a foundation during those first several hundred years of the church. And two particular foundations we discover help to lay the foundation of the church, and that is the apostles and the prophets. In Ephesians 2.19, we see Paul saying that you are fellow citizens, he's talking to the church, and members of God's household, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Why were the apostles and the prophets the two chief uh, corners, the two chief elements of the foundation? It is because they were the ones that brought the revelation of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. They were the ones entrusted with the message, either the apostles who had seen the Lord or these prophets within the church that received direct revelation from the Lord and communicated it to the church. Now, it may surprise you that there were prophets in the church and that the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. He's not speaking about Old Testament prophets. If you think he, uh, in Ephesians 3, 2, it says this, Surely you have heard of the administration of God's grace that was given to me, and this mystery was made known. In reading this, you will understand my insight into the mystery which has made known, not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So these prophets who are in the churches would be speaking the revelation of God. And you may ask the question, well, why are there not prophets now at Redeemer Presbyterian who are doing the exact same thing? It's the exact same reason why we don't have apostles now. That this revelation that was given to the church was written down and codified in God's word. So if the apostles and the, founda- and the prophets were the foundation of the church... Here would be an example. This building was built in 2006. How many times was the foundation laid for this building? The answer was once, right? Once it's laid, now it's time to build upon it. And so this passage is speaking about this particular, Paul is giving instructions to the church for this specific time in history. Now, we have to ask the question, what is a prophet and what is speaking in tongues? There are some in the New Testament who are called prophets. For instance, in Acts 15, Judas and Silas, it says, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the church. Others, for others, this spirit of prophecy would come upon them and they would, uh, it was more of a temporary uh, period. In fact, Paul says to to pray for this, that you would have this gift to do this. You can't develop it. It's not a skill. But rather, the reason Paul is saying to pray for this is because of its value to the congregation. See, the function of prophecy back then, if you look at the passage in 1 Corinthians 14.4, that he who prophecies builds up the church. 
in verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So these are people that have received an immediate revelation from God and can say, thus saith the Lord. They're not people who have been preparing a message like a pastor. Rather, they're sitting there and God gives a message for the purpose of upbuilding, encouragement, or consolation. This word upbuilding is the Greek word oikodome, which means qualitative and quantitative growth. That this message that these prophets were giving was resulting in strengthening the church, the people within the church, and also the unbelievers who were coming into the church were hearing and being convicted by the message of the gospel and coming to faith. This prophecy was not only upbuilding the church, it was encouraging the people. This word encourage, paraklesis, is from where we get the word parakaleo, right? The Holy Spirit, the one who advocates, who comes alongside. That these messages that the prophets were giving were providing exhortation and assurance and encouragement. In Acts 15.32, again, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, encourage and strengthen the brothers with many words. And finally, they gave messages that provided consolation. This word consolation is, means to serve as an encouragement to one who is depressed or in grief. Those early Christians suffered many hardships and difficulties. And these prophets, God gave the messages that would encourage them from becoming overwhelmed with sorrow. So the result of prophets was that unbelievers were convicted and converted, and believers were strengthened and excuse me and encouraged. Well, what about speaking in tongues? What, what is that all about? We learn a little bit in verse two. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. And so the direction of speech, unlike the prophet, which is from God to the prophet to the people, is from the person speaking in tongues to God. Now, this type of speech, it's, it's not gibberish. It's an actual language. But it's not a known language, a human language like French or German or something like that, because no one understands them. Their message that they are giving as they speak in tongues is not for upbuilding or encouragement or for consolation. Rather, it is an utterance to God. And notice, too, we see that it's not rational. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. The speaker who is speaking in tongues, they don't even understand what they're saying. Verse 13 says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. In other words, he doesn't even have an understanding of what he's saying unless God gives him that. And we're going to talk about that uh, next week. The person who is speaking in tongues, we see in verse 17 and right around there that they are giving thanks to God. It, there's some message of praise and thanksgiving to God 
But nobody really understands it other than God himself. For my spirit is praying, but not my mind. What exactly does that mean? You know, your spirit is your essence. It's the core of who you are. We are more than our mind or our body, for instance, right? You can be brain dead, but you're not, you're still a living being or body dead. No, this is something deeper. We're more than our mind. It's like the deep recesses of our heart. I don't know if you've ever experienced this where there are times when we're sad when we're thinking about something and we start crying. But there are other times when, for whatever reason that we don't understand, there's an anguish and a sorrow that rises up from within us, somewhere deep that we can't even necessarily identify, and we cry with a deepness that logic can't even express. We see almost a hint of that in Romans 8.26, that there's not just that, but the Spirit, where, uh, where the Spirit helps us in our weakness, and we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes with groans that words cannot express. That's just a sort of a likeness, but there's something going on with our spirit praying. But you see, the issue that Paul is bringing up is that this person might be doing that, giving thanks through their spirit, even though they don't even understand it, but the issue is that no one else is giving thanks. Paul is saying they're like a lifeless instrument in church that doesn't even produce a, a, a song that anyone can understand. And so where prophecy has a powerful effect on encouraging and strengthening the believers and convicting unbelievers, the effect that Paul is saying of tongues on believers is none. It's solely for the benefit of the person speaking. And furthermore, with unbelievers, it's actually a turnoff. That they come in and they see these people speaking gibberish and their bottom, they think, are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? And they walk out. So that in summary, Paul is saying there is a place for tongues in church, but it's a small place. Because it really doesn't have any benefit on the congregation and possibly a lot of harm. But prophecy is critical because it builds up the church. It exhorts it, encourages, and consoles it. That's the what. Hopefully now you have a better sense of prophecy and tongues and what's going on here. So now we have to turn to the so what. What does this have to do with us? See, before we can understand the book of 1 Corinthians, we have to understand what it meant to the Corinthians. We have to understand the text in its context. See, remember, the question that the Corinthians are actually asking is which is the greatest spiritual gift because they believe that the highest gift is speaking in tongues. They believe that the most spiritually mature person is the one who is exhibiting this gift. Never mind that it's a gift. It's not something that you earn. But they are looking at this as the most important gift because they benefit spiritually. They have a higher experience. 
And furthermore, they're seen by others as being spiritually mature. You know, this actually happens in churches still today, right? Where you, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not spiritually mature. That's only for people who have moved to the next plane of existence. And so that is what the Corinthians crave. This spiritual ecstasy as well as the notoriety that comes along with it. That's what they crave. You know, what you crave says more about you than the actual thing that you crave. And Paul is saying that what you are aspiring to most, A, helps no one but yourself, and B, turns unbelievers away from coming to faith. You want the spotlight. It's all about you. But public worship is for mutual edification, not private enrichment. And furthermore, you're turning away unbelievers. We see in verse 21, it says, In the law it is written by people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me. He's actually quoting Isaiah 28, 11, where he's condemning the Israelites because they refused to listen to God, the prophets that God sent. And so he says, the way I will send the message now is through the Assyrians, the invading army. But they won't listen to them either. And thus they will reject me and they will ultimately be doomed. See, when Paul says that Speaking in tongues is a sign for unbelievers. He's not saying it's a good sign. He's saying that it's a sign of estrangement and retribution. That God doesn't want you. Leave. And that's what you're craving, Corinthians. Now, we don't struggle maybe with this issue of speaking in tongues or even prophecy But could it be that we have moved tongues just into a different category? You know, where did the Corinthians get the idea that tongues was the top gift? Actually, from the culture around them. There were these uh, religions, they were called the Dionysian Mysteries. These rituals in ancient Greece and Rome, in which the people would gather to worship like uh, Bacchus, And they would drink and they would uh, induce trance-like techniques like dance and music to to remove inhibitions. And they would chant and they would sing. And their goal was to uh, escape rationality and move toward a state of ecstasy or spiritual bliss. In other words, they were trying to get an experience of ascending to a higher plane. Many religions have been this way and are this way. I don't know if you remember back with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Remember where uh, Elijah says, all right, take a bull and cut it, okay? And you call to your God and I'll call to my God and we'll see which one is the true God. And the Baal worshipers, they begin chanting and dancing and actually cutting themselves with knives. See, in Baal worship, it was the exact same thing as these Dionysian mysteries. They'd work themselves into a frenzy with this goal of trying to experience 
the divine. What does it have to do with now? You know, there's some church services and Christian concerts that look a little bit more like Baal worship than worshiping God. Now, I'm not saying we're supposed to worship God with all of our heart, right? Not just intellectually. But is the reason that I am coming to worship, to church, is because I want an experience even more than I want God or I want others to grow. In other words, it's all about me. How do you evaluate the service when you get home, when you talk about what went on here today? When the question is asked, how was the worship by someone else? How do you evaluate it? Well, it was good. When you say good, are you meaning because it moved me? Or are you saying good because the Lord was honored and lifted up and the people were strengthened? When someone asks you, how was the sermon? Is it because it tickled my ears and it was entertaining? Or is it because the Lord's word was honored and we were strengthened in the faith? Do I ever use the criteria when I am coming home from a service to evaluate it? Did I genuinely love God and serve and love others around me? Did I hear what God is telling me and am I going to diligently apply what I heard? See, the object of worship is not ourselves and what we get out of it, but whether God is honored and the people are built up. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves is, is my focus at church self-focused or is it God and others focused? That's maybe how we take this issue with tongues and bring it into the future. But what about prophecy? We don't have new revelation. We have the scriptures. And the job, save someone like me now, is to exhort and encourage and even rebuke from time to time from the scriptures. But we all have a role, a prophetic type role to play, though not as a prophet, in exhibiting the manifestations of the spirit that God has given us to excel in building up the church. See, we have a role with each other that first, each of us have been given gifts of grace. And we've been given these gifts for the purpose of building up the people around me. So what is it that the God is calling me to do and be to strengthen this church? Because I have a part to play. So am I asking the question, How am I participating in building up this church? Not simply, what am I getting out of this church? But rather, how am I building up this church? For instance, Romans 12, 7 puts it this way. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him or her teach. If it is encouraging, let them encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let them do it cheerfully. Generously, if it is leadership, let them govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let them do it cheerfully. 
Because it's actually better to give than to receive. I know that this doesn't make sense in light of the world, but it's true. And Jesus Christ, when he came, demonstrated this. For he did not live a self-centered life, did he? But he lived a God-centered life. Jesus said in John 4, 34, that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's what got Jesus out of bed in the morning. That's what excited him. He was God-centered, and he was also other-centered. 1 John 3, 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And Jesus continues through the Holy Spirit to show this kind of other-centered love for us. He is not proud, is he? He has shown that he will take us even though we pretty much always tell him that we prefer something else than him. See, we, each one of us, has a role of upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And we don't need fresh revelation from God to do that. We have God's revelation. But we need to apply it with each other. As Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We each need encouragement in each other because a 35, 135 minute sermon from the pastor on a Sunday for the entire week just ain't going to cut it. I don't care how good he is. The Bible paints a picture of people living together in community, building and strengthening each other up. America paints a picture of the church as something like a yoga class that you take. But the reality is we need one another. But the unbelieving world needs us as well, does it not? See, the error of the Corinthians, it's all about me. And I really don't care about the person in the pew next to me. But more than that, I really don't care about the person that isn't even here yet. But that was once us. See, the church, the only reason we are still around and that Jesus Christ hasn't come is because he has not yet called the full complement of his children to himself. And he has set up the church so that we would have an eye not only to strengthening one another, but to looking outside of ourselves and creating an environment that is conducive to unbelievers coming in to hear the word of God. And so the music we choose, the language we use, how we greet one another should always have a consideration, not only for us, but for those who aren't even here yet. So how are we doing with that? Do we have a heart to the world around side of us? Or is this just our little group getting together? I'm okay with there being empty seats in this church. If God wants this to be our size. 
But if the reason they're empty seats in this church is because we simply think that this is our little thing and we really don't care about anybody outside these four walls, we've missed it. Because God wants each one of us to love the lost. And our lives are to be manifestations of the love of God. If you were to ask symbologists, there is such a thing, what is the most recognizable symbol in the world? It would be the cross. The cross. All the way back from the beginning, history Ancient history has shown that this was the symbol adopted by people, Christians, of, to show their faith. When they weren't allowed to put the cross, they, the fish was another one, but it was the cross. It was called the Lord's sign. And indeed, Christians were criticized as adorers of an instrument of torture. Many of us wear a cross around our neck, the equivalent for the modern day would be wearing a necklace with a little electric chair or a little hypodermic needle, which people use for lethal injection. See, because the cross was designed for it to be the ultimate humiliation and pain for a person. But the, one, the most inhuman form of execution today stands for love, hope, and everlasting life. Why do we love the cross? Because it shows the extent of Christ's love for us. Jesus didn't write us a poem. He didn't send us a gift. His gruesome death was the gift. A picture of how far he was willing to go to redeem us. A picture of him denying himself and placing us as the apple of his eye. And this is the path that he calls us to. Not the path of spiritual self-fulfillment, but the path of giving ourselves away for one another and for the world. Because this is what we were meant for. And the church is the place where we learn to carry it out. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, follow my path. Dying to being the center and making God and serving God's creatures as the center of your life. Because what you find on the other side of death is resurrection. And when you give up a self-centered life, it's then you begin to live. Well, I need to, I'm running out of time, so I need to turn to the now what. I have a confession. I keep waiting for Christianity to get easier. That someday I would wake up and serving and loving Jesus and others would be effortless. That putting others above myself would be like second nature. But it's not. It's hard. There's something in me that does not like dying to myself. In my inner being, I delight in God and his law. But I find it to be a law that whenever I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. My spirit may have been resurrected, but my flesh is fallen. 
And so the epistles tell us that I need to put to death what is earthly in us. It's so serious that I need to kill it daily. I have to daily choose to crucify my fleshly desires and choose the lordship of Christ. But thank goodness I'm not alone. As Romans 7, Paul says, Wretched man, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because Christ is with me through the Holy Spirit to come alongside me, to help me be the person, to empower me to be the person I want to be but cannot be on my own. Every day I have an opportunity to die in some little way to myself and to live to God. With my spouse, with my children, with non-believers around me, with brothers and sisters in Christ. But I've noticed something with the Lord. That promise always lies on the other side of price. See, we don't see the power until we make the move. Jesus said to Peter, step out of the boat. And when he stepped out of the boat, he felt the solid ground. Jesus said to the, le- the, uh, the person with the shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. And as they did, it was healed. Jesus said to the paralytic, take up your mat and walk. And as they stood, the power was there. Life is on the other side of death. But I have to approach it with the grace of Jesus Christ and say, meet me there. To follow Jesus daily, I have to get good at dying. So what do you need to die to today? In this church, maybe the expectation that it's all about me and my spiritual well-being. At my home, maybe to recognize that my role here is to serve and to put others above myself. In the world, maybe to move over from avoiding people to embracing them and investing in their lives. Because if you want to experience life, you've got to get busy dying. It's only when you give up a self-centered life that you begin to live. That's what we were meant for. And by God's grace and God's spirit, that's what we will become. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have freed us from the tyranny of a self-centered, self-focused life. And yet we battle that our flesh pushes us against, pushes against us. God, we need your grace through your Holy Spirit. Give us courage to die to ourselves and to live to you, to follow the path of you, Jesus. For as we give our life away, we will find it. And you came that we might have life and have it to the full. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.